Let's read together. I'm in the English Standard Version. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray now that as we come to hear your word, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive the seed that is sown. And Lord, that we individually would put faith on that word. That we would believe that this word isn't just the mere words of a pastor, but these are the words of God that are coming to us today, and that are for our good and for our upbuilding. And so, Lord God, we pray we receive these words as oracles from you, Lord God. And I pray you'd help me not to get in the way of your word, but to proclaim it as it is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's a good day to be alive. Amen? People happy today? There or thereabouts. Well, today's a good day to be alive. His mercies are new every morning, the Bible says, and so that's good news for me. I need those mercies. I don't know about you. So this passage that we have today is all about authority. That word authority is used a number of times. It's the Greek word exousia or exousia, however you want to pronounce that. And it just simply means the power to do something with or without an added implication of authority. So, you know, a policeman who's on the beat has the authority to arrest you, don't they? But just anybody out on the street, they might be able to do a citizen's arrest, but they don't carry the same authority as a policeman. We're talking today about the authority of Jesus. So that's what this is all about. We're going to learn something about the Pharisees also and the scribes and these elders. This passage is also going to deal with them. So on one hand, we're looking at Jesus. We're looking at his authority. And on the other hand, we're getting a little look-see into the nature of unbelief. So that's what we're going to be seeing today in the Sanhedrin. Why was it that they reacted this way to Jesus? You remember the last time we were in the Gospel of Mark? We were looking at Jesus going into the temple and cleansing the temple, didn't he? He turned over the tables. He got out a three-corded whip and he drove them out. Jesus wasn't being very Jesus-like, was he? Um, He wasn't being very nice. He cleansed the temple of all those selling and buying. He cleansed it. And so... Now we're getting to see the reaction of the Sanhedrin and we're going to see something about their condition, where they were at in their hearts and why that was. We're also going to see a little connection today between two ministries that happened at the same time. The ministries of John the Baptist and of Jesus. What connection was there between the two? When Jesus asks that question, tell me whether the baptism of John's from heaven or from man, when you read it the first time you're like, what's that got to do with anything? But we'll see how it's really, really connected. So this is what we're looking at today. This scripture breaks down into three parts, really. You've got verses 27 and 28, which is the Sanhedrin questioning Jesus' authority. Then verses 29 and 30, we have Jesus' kind of counter-question. It's a little bit odd to the untrained eye. And then verses 31 to 33, we have the dishonest answer 
of the Sanhedrin. So when this is happening, when these Sanhedrin come to Jesus, this is, most people believe, happening on the Tuesday of Passion Week. Because you all know we're in the the run-up to Easter. And as we celebrate Easter, we're celebrating, obviously, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this happened on the Tuesday in the run-up to that week. So we're already now in Mark's Gospel in the run-up to these incredible world-changing events. This is supposedly on the Tuesday of Passion Week. And this text says that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came together. Now, this is the first time in Mark's Gospel when those three different types of leader come together to speak to Jesus. And together, the chief priests, scribes, and elders were known as the Sanhedrin. Now, before we, we don't want to get too much into the detail of who these people were, but suffice to say, these guys were the top dogs of the Jewish religion in Jesus' day. They, they were like a kind of, you've got the Romans governing at the very top politically at Jesus' time, and then you have the Sanhedrin, and they were basically like a buffer organization between Rome and the Jewish people. And they were composed of about 71 members, and these guys were the powers that be in Jerusalem at the time. They were also kind of like the religious elite. Like they would, they, it would have been like the Pope and all of his cardinals showing up en masse to speak to Jesus. These were the kind of accredited, ordained ministers of Jesus' day who held the power in the Jewish religion at the time. And they were regarded by the Jews as that. They weren't, I know now when we read the Bible, we, we, we read Pharisees and we're a bit like, boo, hiss. But that's actually not how the Jews saw them. They were well respected. Um, when they spoke, people listened to them. And so this is like kind of a blockbuster moment. It's a showdown that's happening in the temple. These people, the, the great and the good of the Jewish religion, are coming to Jesus. And everybody's eyes are pinned on what's about to happen. There's a clash, an authority clash about to take place. And they come to Jesus, don't they, and ask him a question. Have you ever been asked a question that was a thinly veiled, um, a sort of a thinly veiled accusation? They ask him a question, but do you really think they, they want an honest answer to that? Do you really think they want to know, or is there some other kind of ulterior motive? Well, I think basically what they're wanting to say is you don't have the authority. They say, but what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do these things? Really what they're saying is, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are showing up in our temple? Right? We don't remember you in Gamaliel's school. We don't remember you being ordained, Jesus. You're just some Nazarite, uh, sorry, Nazarite, uh, I don't even know what the word is, but you're from Nazareth. You're from up in Galilee. You haven't been through theological school. Who on earth do you think you are? We don't think you've got any authority to do these things. So it's a question, but it's a, it's a jilted question. They really wanted to try and humiliate Jesus. They're either trying to humiliate him and show him up in front of everybody, or they want to trap him in his words so that they can prosecute him, basically. Um, so I don't think they're asking an honest question at this point. I don't know if you've ever been asked a question like that. But I think we're seeing something here in the Sanhedrin's question of the way that unbelief works. Because I think when we're growing up, uh, when we look at the world around us, not through the lens of the Bible, but just generally, there's kind of this understanding that everyone is just neutral. 
in regards to the things of God. We think that everybody's just kind of starting from the same place. People are kind of neither opposed to the gospel or accepting of the gospel until, until they choose to accept or reject it. But actually, that's a myth. And we're seeing that right here. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says something quite different about how we are born into this world. And it's quite, it's quite alarming, to be honest. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And then listen to this. Following the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean? Who's that? And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's quite strong language, isn't it? When Paul says the prince of the power of the air, who do you think he's talking about there? He's not talking about Christ, no. He's actually talking about another spiritual power in the heavenly places. Satan, the deceiver. And so what he's saying is that when we are outside of Christ, we're not actually neutral to the gospel, but we, according to Paul, are following the course of this world and we're also following Satan. That's quite strong language, isn't it? But that's what Paul says. And he also says that that spirit is actually in some way at work in all of us when we're born into this world. That before we are filled with the Holy Spirit and saved by grace, that on some level, the enemy is at work in us. And so that, that sort of idea that we're all just neutral, that you know, people just kind of like ambivalent towards the gospel, the Bible says, no, actually, there's, there's opposition from the off. And what we're seeing here in the Sanhedrin is some of that at work. There's a spirit that's actually at work, according to the Bible, in the hearts of those who have not been born again. And this spirit... This enemy, this adversary of our souls, Satan, the Bible calls him, he wants to humiliate you. He wants to expose you as a fool. He wants to trap you in your words. How many of you have experienced this as a Christian? You feel the sense, that as soon as you start sharing your faith, it's almost like you can feel something coming off people. You're like, ah, and that's because Paul says, actually, there is opposition to the gospel. And for me, this was really well illustrated when I was at university. I studied theology at university, but it wasn't at a Christian university. It was actually just a regular secular university. And one of my modules was actually watching a documentary by an atheist scholar called Richard Dawkins. How many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins? He's a really brilliant biologist. And I think I would want to say that he, he, he is a very, very intelligent man, but when he crosses over to talk about the things of faith, I think he, he's not so intelligent. But we had to sit through an entire film series of his. And since then, obviously, I've been exposed to lots of this sort of thing. I've got an apologetics podcast where I'll deal with atheistic arguments against Christianity, the likes of Ricky Gervais and Stephen Fry. Do you remember a few years ago, Stephen Fry... Um, did an interview where he basically expressed what he'd like to say to God, given the opportunity. And what always strikes me about the reactions of these men to God and to Christ is how angry they are. How angry they are and how their reactions are so often filled with 
scorn and hatred. Now, if something doesn't exist, it's impossible to hate that thing because there's, how can a mythical thing create hatred in your heart? But there's arrogance and hatred and pride. And when you strip back all of the dry wit, all of the scorn and the hatred and the anger, there's actually not much meat left on the bones of their argument. They're relatively poor arguments themselves. But there's just so much anger. And that's what we're seeing here, I believe, in a short amount in these men, in the Sanhedrin. We're seeing that. They want to humiliate Jesus. They want to make him feel small. And I would say this, Christians, when you're out in the world, know what you're up against. This world is not neutral. It's not neutral. But watch what Jesus does. Does he cave? Does he say, I'm sorry, you got me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not qualified. Um, sorry, guys. He doesn't, does he? Jesus doesn't cave. He does respond. And we'll see how interesting his response is in a moment. But I would want to encourage you as well. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This world is hostile to the things of God and to the gospel. But when we watch our Lord, he doesn't back down. He doesn't run away. He doesn't hide. And nor must we in sharing the gospel. It's a matter of life and death. And so I think many of us Christians, because we haven't understood this about the world, that it's, it's not neutral, that it's actually hostile to the things of God and until God transforms our hearts, I think many of us Christians have grown quiet about the things of the gospel. We've, we've dumbed them down because we're actually afraid of the reaction we're going to get. You know, we, we'll go quiet on Jesus being the only way of salvation. You know, it's not so much that we would deny that, it's just that we wouldn't want to be caught out. You know, we just imagine a, a poor Christian minister on BBC Panorama. So you're saying Jesus is the only way for somebody to get saved. Well, and we start pontificating, prevaricating, doing whatever we can to get out of the, you know. And I would say don't do that, but be wise. Be wise in how we respond. I think it's First Peter 3.15. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And do it with what? With gentleness and respect. Don't be scared. Ask the Holy Spirit for the right words to say. And do whatever or say whatever you say, the Bible says, with gentleness and respect. And Jesus answers with a question. He answers with a question. He doesn't answer them outright, does he? And I think that's interesting as well. It's not strange though. I think when I used to read this, I was like, is Jesus like evading the question? Is he actually scared to answer them? But I actually think this is not strange at all when you read it properly. Lots of rabbis did this at the time. They answered a question with a question. And the question that they responded with was kind of meant to answer the concerns that the person asking had. And Jesus says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. What does that question have to do with anything? About authority, we might ask. Was he just distracting them? And then he's going to run off. In fact, one of my favorite movies in the 80s and 90s is Back to the Future. How many people love Back to the Future? He'd be like, Biff, what's that? Bam! <laughs> and I was thinking, is this one of those? Jesus just throwing up a question to keep them busy while he slinks off. But it isn't that, actually. It's not that. Jesus' answer, or this question that he asks them, it actually reveals the answer that they are seeking in the first place. 
How is it that that's the case? Well, what was John the Baptist's ministry all about? What was his job? To show the way to Jesus, wasn't it? In John chapter 1, John the Baptist actually says, doesn't he? They say, people come to John the Baptist, they say, who are you? Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Now, these are probably some of the same guys that are meeting Jesus in the temple right now. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? And John says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they've been sent from the Pharisees. So some of these guys asking Jesus in the temple likely had heard this themselves from John. It's possible. And they asked him, why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. And then Jesus comes towards him and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. Because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. We're seeing something now of John's purpose, aren't we? We're seeing what his job was, but we'll read on. As John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, on Jesus, that is. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, who sent John? God sent John. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John's ministry was what? It was to reveal who Jesus was. And when he baptized Jesus, what happened? The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove, didn't it? And more than that, the voice of God came from heaven. We don't know whether all the people heard it or whether just a few heard it, but the voice of God from heaven said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now can you see the connection between what Jesus is saying? Some of these same men potentially could have been at that baptism. These same men knew what John had said about his purpose and his ministry. John's and Jesus' ministry are connected. A decision about John the Baptist is a decision about Jesus. That's what is happening here. So if you say John's ministry is from heaven, you're saying Jesus' ministry is from heaven. If you're saying John's ministry is from man, you're saying Jesus' ministry is from man. The two are absolutely connected. So the baptism, the question they've answered, sorry, they've asked Jesus of where his authority came from, is answered by John. Where did John's authority come from? It came from God. But the Sanhedrin didn't believe that, did they? I don't think for one minute they were thinking that John the Baptist was a true prophet of God. And so when Jesus asks them the question, instead of being straight and saying, we think it's from man, what do they do? They discuss, don't they? They come back and they start talking. They start deciding what they're going to say. And that, interestingly, that word in Greek that translates discussed, or they discussed amongst themselves... That word appears just seven times in Mark's gospel. But every time it appears, do you know what the context is? It's always appearing 
in a context where people are trying to evade the force of Jesus' words. And so what are they doing here? What's Mark wanting us to know? They're trying their best to get out from under Jesus' words. They don't want to answer this question. They want to find a way out. They say, if we say to Jesus that his anointing was from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? If we say it's from men, then we risk stirring up the crowd against us because they all think John was a prophet. So what's happening here? They end up saying, we don't know. We don't know, Jesus, whether John's baptism is from heaven or from man. We, we've no idea. But I don't think that's the case. I think they did know. I think they did know, and I think they didn't want to say. They were scared of what the people would do if they were honest. And they were also not willing to be humiliated in front of people if they answered Jesus and said, yeah, from heaven. So they lied, and they claimed ignorance. We don't know. Agnosticism. Agnosticism. And I think many in this world claim agnosticism when really they know the truth because they don't want to be humiliated. They're afraid of what people will think of them if they follow Jesus. They're afraid of the reaction of the crowd. You started to go into church now. What happened to you? You used to be fun. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about all this, this, uh, this gospel stuff. I'm not sure about God. I'm not sure about the scriptures. I don't know what I believe, but really they know. This is what we're seeing. It Unbelief isn't just ignorance, it's blindness. Jesus says in John 3, 19 to 21, the light has come into the world. This might not be John. Sorry, Jesus, this might be John. But, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's a risk involved in playing dumb with God. There's a risk involved in playing dumb and pretending you don't know when you know. People claim ignorance, don't they, in the world? Well, I'm just not sure there's enough evidence for God. I'm not sure, you know, Christian, I'm not so sure you know what you're talking about here. I've had this before. When you talk to people about the gospel... And they'll say things like, or, or people that know other non-Christians, I'll talk to them about the gospel. They'll say, listen, I'm just too clever for that. I'm too smart for that. Um, you know, I see through your, your schemes and your plots. And, you know, I just, I'm too, I'm too smart to believe this stuff. <laughs> Romans 1:18 to 20 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This isn't very nice stuff to read, is it? But it, it, rather than saying that the natural man or natural woman likes to evaluate the truth and is totally neutral and unbiased in the way that they handle truth claims, the Bible actually says no. Apart from the grace of God, what we do is we go, I don't like that. I'm going to stuff that truth about God and Christ being king. I'm going to stuff that down because actually I don't want to be held accountable for the way that I live my life. I don't want to be told how to live. And so I'm going to actually pretend that this stuff's nonsense. And I'm going, to ruin it. I'm going to rubbish it and say it's not true. The Bible actually says in Romans 1, again, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made 
So all are without excuse. Now, I think that there is a place for explaining to people more clearly about what the Bible means and about the claims of Christianity. Sometimes people need help understanding these things. That's why Peter said, always be ready to give an answer. But equally, nobody on judgment day is going to be able to look at God and say, you just never gave me enough evidence to believe in you. Because the scriptures say, no one has a reason for that. He's clearly being perceived in the things that exist in nature, in the way that our human bodies work even, the way that we think, the way we reason, the idea of objective truth. Everybody believes in objective truth, don't they? I remember sitting down with a friend of mine the once because he wanted to tell me off a little bit and say that Christianity was backwards and bigoted and hateful. And so we sat down together over a pint, we were talking, and he was, he was telling me about the problems with, with Christianity. And listening, I listened as much as I could to that. And after a while, conversation turned. I asked him what he believed and why he believed that Christianity was evil and wrong. And he said, well, it's just obvious that it is. And I said, okay, well, what's your standard for judging that? What, what is the objective standard for you to say that Christianity is backwards and bigoted and wrong and wicked? And he said, well, I, I just actually believe that all morality is relative. You know, I, I have my morality. You have yours. I respect yours. You should respect mine. And I said, well, that's not relative morality. Because you're asking us all to obey your version of morality. You're saying, I need to respect your morality. And that if I don't, I'm wrong. Well, what? that's not subjective morality. That's objective morality. You're saying your truth is true for all of us at all times. So really what you're saying is that you are the arbiter of truth. You personally are the arbiter of right and wrong. And we all need to submit to you. And that's exactly what the Bible says about mankind. It says people don't have no God. They make themselves God. Instead. So I just don't really believe in atheists. I believe that atheists are people who've made themselves God. And they want everybody else to believe what they believe. Jesus is Lord, brothers and sisters. Jesus is Lord. He has all authority. We read it all the way through the Gospel of Mark. Right from chapter 1, Jesus has authority. An authority that the scribes and the Pharisees don't have in his teaching. We read in Mark 2 that he's got authority, again, the same word, exousia. He's got authority to forgive sins. In Mark 3, he has authority to cast out demons. He's got authority over all the powers of darkness. And in Mark 6, he even gives that authority to his followers. Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And now... Guess what? If you're in Christ, we stand in his authority. We need not fear the powers of darkness. Let's stand together. We need not fear man. Even though it can be scary and we can feel that pressure at times, just like Jesus would have done when faced down by all the great and the good of his time, we need not be frightened because our Lord has all authority. And we share in him. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you that we don't worship a God who is like us. We don't worship a God who is limited in power or in authority. But we serve and worship and know a God who is over all the world, who has all power in both heaven and on earth. And Father, we pray today that you would strengthen us not to fear when people don't understand the things of God, not to fear when we feel put on the spot or made to feel silly for what we believe, but rather, Lord, that we'd be strengthened to give an answer, to give a reason for what we believe that is both gentle and respectful but true. Lord, we pray that you would help us to to grow more and more confident in sharing the gospel with others. We pray, Lord God, you would help us be brave and to take risks. But that all the time, Lord, people, even if we get answers muddled or wrong, people will be able to say, you know what? That person was kind. That person was gentle. That person was respectful. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.